0: May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It is a pleasure to be with you this evening, and I hope and pray that you will be as blessed by the gospel of grace as we are each week as we hear the gospel of grace proclaimed to us from his word. And so I encourage you at this time, if you will, to look in the gospel of Luke chapter three, and there you will find our sermon text for this evening. We will not take the time to unpack every line of this story, but we do want to give a sense of what Luke is telling us in Luke chapter 3. To give you a heads up, over the last few weeks we have been in the gospel of Luke, and we are trying to follow along with Luke's argument, where Luke says that he has written this book To a God lover, a man named Theophilus, whether he was an historical figure or just a generic name to mean God lover. Those of us who love God appreciate the fact that Luke has written to us. And he says that he's written to us in such a way that we may know the true truth of the things that we have been taught. And so Luke is trying to reconfirm for us the things that we've already heard about Jesus. But he has written his story and framed his story in such a way that he can confirm for us things about the Lord Jesus Christ to help us grow up in our knowledge and understanding of the Lord Jesus Over the last couple of weeks, we have gravitated towards the themes in Luke 1 and 2 that deal with children. And so Luke has made it clear to us that God loves little children and that God uses little children for His purposes. And our children have benefited from hearing the story of God and how their stories are tied to the stories of little children like baby John the Baptist and baby Jesus. Well, today as we go into Luke 3, we see that John the Baptist is no longer a little baby. He has grown up and the things that God said to his parents through the angel Gabriel are becoming real. They're being fulfilled and we get to see John living out his ministry and calling as God declared it to him. And so, with that in mind, having some background, I encourage you to stand at this time for the reading of God's Word from Luke chapter 3. And I will be reading from the worship order, so you can follow along with that. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judah, Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation... So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And the voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add His blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of His Word. And all the church says, you may be seated. If you're familiar with the story of John the Baptist, you know that John the Baptist was a Nazarite, which means that John was set apart for the purposes of God all the days of his life. He was not permitted to drink wine or beer or even grape juice. He was not allowed to eat grapes or raisins. He was not even allowed to ever get a haircut or to get his beard trimmed. And so you can imagine how the locks of his hair must have grown really long. And he must have become a very hairy man in his adult age. He was not allowed to go to funerals, not even for his mother and father. As you know, they were already elderly when he was born. And so a time probably came when they passed away. And yet, being a Nazarite, he was not able to draw near to them. Certainly grieve their loss upon their passing, but not able to attend the funeral or to be near them in their time of death. All the days of his life, John the Baptist was set apart as a Nazarite and he was holy to the Lord. Something else about John the Baptist that we need to know is that John the Baptist was a priest. He was a priest and we know he was a priest because he was born to a priest. His daddy was a priest. He was born into a family of priests. A priest was simply a kind of minister and he spent his life ministering to God and to God's people. A priest makes sacrifices, they offer prayers, they teach God's word to God's people. And this is the very thing you see John doing out at the Jordan River. From the mouth of a priest, people were supposed to seek knowledge. And this is what's happening in the story. Various people say to him, teacher, what shall we do? And then he tells them what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to live. And tied to this priestly ministry, we see also that John was a prophet. And this is the way most people think of John the Baptist as John the Baptist, the prophet, the fiery prophet who was preaching hellfire and brimstone against the people of God. A prophet was a kind of preacher with a special message and a mission from God. And here John comes as a prophet. He's preaching that people need to repent. A word that simply means to change their way of life, to turn back to God, to do the right things. So as you know, prophets like to use graphic words and images to make their message stick. And so in this reading we just heard, John the Baptist is calling people snakes and stones, and he's talking about God's wrath and judgment and how an axe is laid at the root of a tree. All of these scary images are intended to get behind our defenses and get inside of our skin to our hearts to remind us that this is serious business. John is preparing people for the way of the Lord. And he is preparing not only the way for the Lord to come, but preparing the people to meet the Lord when He comes. A lot of strange things about John the Baptist. I've already mentioned how he was likely a very hairy man. But he also had a very strange way of dressing. He didn't dress like the other priests did. They tended to wear white garments that were very clean and pristine. And yet, there's John the Baptist wearing animal skins, hairy garments, leather belts, had a strange diet, locusts and honey, lived out in the wilderness. You think of Doug Dynasty kind of people when you think of John the Baptist at this point. And yet, when John starts preaching, people come out because they need to hear a word from God. God has been silent for 400 years, speaking through his word, speaking through the sacrifices, speaking in the ordinary means of grace, but silent in terms of there has been no profit from God until John comes along. And when John stands up to preach, people take notice and listen the, the Old Testament ended with these words from Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Well, it's in that spirit that John the Baptist comes as the... Elijah, who was to come. And it's also in that spirit that we have spent the last few years and the last few weeks trying to turn our hearts to our children and turn our children and their hearts back to us. In other words, we want to live in the story of God and to see how God is reuniting His covenant community family by family. John grew up and became strong in spirit, and like his forefathers, he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. So like his forefathers, he's been wandering in the wilderness. But now it's time to come to the Jordan and to cross over into the land of promise. And he's going to lead the people of God through this water out of the wasteland into a life with the promised Christ. And so he starts preaching, and literally and figuratively, he's stirring the waters. This gets people's attention, and everyone is trying to figure out who or what John the Baptist is. The religious leaders especially are concerned about John, because he is gaining so much attention, drawing people away from themselves to himself, and Stirring people up and making people question things. And you see a kind of revival breaking out and religious leaders get nervous about those kinds of things. I want to say a word of defense on behalf of these religious leaders, though. They were right to be concerned about John. They were right to send people out to evaluate him and assess his doctrine in life. They were right to do that. Any shepherd worth his salt will do that kind of thing. And so these religious leaders aren't simply concerned about their own prestige and, and crowds and their own ministry. They're also concerned about the welfare of the people around them. What if John is a false prophet? What if he's undermining the authority of God? What if he's leading a rebellion that will affect the entire community? So they want to know, who is John? What is John doing? It's interesting in the story, we see that they send priests and Levites out to John And you know why they did that is because John came from the priest and the Levites. And so they send people from his own tribe and his own community out there to deal with them. These people have watched John grow up. They remember when his father couldn't speak and then made the signs, give him the name John because his father had seen an angel. They remember that his mother and father couldn't have children for years. And then suddenly there's John and everyone was excited. And they've watched this guy grow up with this great promise Before him, but now maybe things aren't turning out the way they had imagined. Who is this guy? What is he up to? And notice in the story that the question they ask is not, Why do you live in the wilderness? Why do you have a weird diet? Why do you wear those clothes? Why don't you get your clothes where the rest of us do? No, their question gets right to the heart of the matter. And the question is, Are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Now, that might be a strange question to ask someone. In our day, it would certainly be a strange question to ask someone. I wouldn't dream of thinking that any of you or anyone else around us is the Christ. And I would never ask someone that. And yet, in their day, all of these long years of expecting the Christ to come and hoping that He would come and piecing together... The puzzle and connecting dots, they're thinking this guy might be the Christ. But why do they ask him this? Why do they ask him, Are you the anointed one? Are you the prophet king priest that God promised to send us? Why would they ask John that question? And why would they ask John that question, knowing full well that John did not descend from the right tribe out of which was going to come the Christ? Maybe they're thinking, we might have missed something. We're a little confused. John came from the tribe of Levi. They, The Christ was to come from the tribe of Judah. So why are they asking him, are you the Christ? Well, the story itself gives us the clue as to why they were asking this question. And I would venture a guess that up to this point, these are all things that most of you knew. If not all of you knew these things. But what we're about to see is maybe something that you didn't know or haven't seen before. And so I want you to hear it carefully, uh, weigh it out, and let's see what the Lord does with this. Here's why they asked John if he was the Christ. It was not because of what he was wearing. In other words, we ask why did they ask if he was the Christ? Was there something about him that made them ask the question? Was it his clothes? No. Was it his long beard and long hair? No. Was it his family tree? No, it wasn't that. You know what it was? It was the way he was preaching and it was the way he was baptizing that made them ask, are you the Christ? Let me show you what I mean by that. The fact that John came out of the desert preaching and baptizing with water made lots of people think that he might be the long-expected Christ. And there are two very simple reasons for that. One is the place where John was baptizing. And two is the priestly way in which he was performing baptism. Those two things together made people think this guy might be the Christ. Now, of course, not all of the... Stars aligned, but there were enough things going on there that made them think he might be the Christ. Let me show you what I mean. As for the place, what's, what's, what's the big deal about the place? Well, as for the place, John was baptizing people at the Jordan River. That's a big deal if you are a part of Israel and you know the history of your people. That's the same place where Joshua and the priests led Israel to cross over from the desert into the promised land. It's also the same place where Elijah the prophet crossed over the river before he was taken away into heaven by a whirlwind in chariots of fire. It also happens to be the place where Elijah passed the mantle on to Elisha. So once again, Elijah is here and change is going to come. John is going to pass the mantle on to Jesus at the Jordan. And as John says elsewhere, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. The Jordan River is also the place where Naaman, the leper, the Gentile leper, was sent to dip himself seven times. Remember how he went into the river, complained that it was dirty, dirtier than his home, uh, the rivers in his home country. But he, he went and washed clean and his skin became like that of a newborn baby. Why is that significant? Because what John is telling the people around him is you people are unclean. Like the Gentiles. You, Israel, are like Naaman the leper. You must be washed clean. You must be cleansed in order to prepare yourselves for the way of the Lord. So, the place in which John was baptizing was one thing that made people think this guy might be the Christ. But the other thing that made them think it was the way that John performed baptisms. John is baptizing the same way the priest before him baptized. And he baptized in the same way that the Christ was going to baptize according to the word of the prophets. Now, I know that all of us, most of us, have seen movies depicting John the Baptist standing wild-eyed in a river, calling people to come out, and then he's plunging one after another in the water. Many of us were baptized in that very way. I was baptized by immersion not once but twice because there was a lot of confusion where I came from over how many times and how often a person could be baptized. Perhaps some of you have been baptized in that way, perhaps even more than once. We know there's one baptism, but things get messy sometimes, don't they? So all of us understand something of what John is doing here. And we tend to imagine that John is out there plunging one person after another underwater. And to be fair, there is a chance that John was doing that very thing. If you read in church history, there's a lot of discussion over how baptisms were performed. Was it by dipping someone or was it by some other way? I want to suggest to you, just food for thought, that perhaps John was baptizing in a way very different than we imagine. And I want to make a biblical case for that now. If you look at history, for example, Christian history, you'll see that in Christian history, Christian artists often portrayed baptism in their paintings on the walls of the catacombs, for example. And you can still Google those and you can look at the pictures that have been taken of Christian artwork where people are baptizing by standing in knee-deep water and usually pouring water out of a shell or a cup or something onto the head of someone else standing next to them in or near water. This is early on in Christian history. This is the way people understood baptism. Sometimes they'll have a picture of someone holding a hyssop branch that's been dipped in water and the water is being sprinkled on those who are standing nearby. That's just from Christian history. And so for those of you who wonder, why did the early church baptize by pouring and sprinkling? And also by immersing all three things. Why did they do that? It's because early on, we're trying to make sense of how these things were done. The point is that God didn't say specifically do it in this way, and this way only. Okay. but I want to give you a biblical rationale for why John might have been baptizing in a way that made the people around him say, this guy might be the Christ. This guy might be the Christ. And here's what it was. The Scriptures portray baptism from the Old Testament into the New as a ceremonial washing, as a ritual cleansing. And the Scriptures show us that these things were performed by sprinkling and by pouring. So I'm going to give you a few examples, okay? In the book of Numbers, you have Moses, who is a shadow type of Jesus Christ who is called by God to cleanse priests by sprinkling the water of purification on them. Later on in the book of Numbers, a ceremonially clean priest was called upon to cleanse unclean people by taking a hyssop stalk and dipping it in water and sprinkling it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on all the persons who were Present everyone who had been near or touched a dead body. So this had to do with uh, with death. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews nine ten, the Hebrew writer describes these kinds of washings by sprinkling as baptisms. That's in the Greek language, baptisms. So we might ask, well, what does all this have to do with Christ, and why would anyone think that John Pouring water and sprinkling water on people, what would that make people think he might be the Christ? Well, here's why. God spoke about the coming of the Christ throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. And according to the prophets, the Christ was going to come. He was going to save his people from their sins. And he was going to set his people apart for God's own possession. And throughout the Old Testament, we hear these kinds of things said about the Christ. For example, God spoke through the Old Testament prophets and he said in Isaiah 52, 12, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. And again, God said in Ezekiel 36, 24 to 26, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You can see the connections, can't you, between those prophetic statements and the mission and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, can't you? In the Great Commission, Jesus echoes the words of the prophets when he says, Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God. God also spoke through the prophets and said in Isaiah 44:3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. So in this prophetic word, God's people are the dry and thirsty land. And God's spirit is the water and blessing that is poured out from heaven upon them. God said through the prophet Joel in Joel two twenty eight to 29, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters, your old and your young, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. And the apostles picked right up where the prophets left off. In Titus 3, God said through the Apostle Paul, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And the Apostle Peter echoes All of this when he says in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus God raised up, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Therefore, know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children. So what does all of that have to do with John the baptizer and with Jesus? Well, the religious leaders, the scholars, the lawyers, the theologians, the priests, They all saw that John was preaching repentance and that he was baptizing with water like a priest would in the same way the prophet said the Christ was going to do. And in their meetings, they looked at each other and said, as crazy as it sounds, John just might be the Christ. Let's go ask Him. And so they sent delegates out to ask Him. And John denied it, of course. No, I'm not the Christ. I'm baptizing you with water, but there is one among you mightier than I, greater than I. And He will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, He is going to come and He will bring with Him grace and wrath, mercy and justice. And when He comes everyone will have to deal with him. So John is simply preparing people for the coming of the Lord. Now, I want to say something here. Um, What I've just said to you might seem awfully theological and doctrinal. So, So let me now say something to you that's more pastoral. I can only imagine how some of you are feeling at this moment. Maybe some of you feel a little anxious Maybe you feel a little bit agitated. I hope and pray that none of you feel attacked. That was not the intent or goal of what we just looked at. But if you feel any of those things at all, let me please try to put your heart and mind at ease. While we're talking about a different mode of baptism here, and it's certainly different than what many of you have witnessed or experienced, It is consistent with what the scriptures teach and it's consistent with what the Christian church has practiced through the years. But I want to make it clear from the standpoint of our denominations, and some of you are not familiar with uh, the the PCA, which is our denomination. Uh, We make it clear in our standards that uh, we don't believe there is just one way to baptize. We don't fixate on the mode of baptism. Our standards make it clear that any baptism that has been administered by an ordained minister with water in the triune name of God is a valid and legitimate baptism. And we would never think of calling anyone to get rebaptized in a different mode than the one they were baptized in. As I mentioned earlier, I was baptized by immersion. And I feel no compulsion compulsion, uh, to get baptized by pouring, and neither should you if you were baptized by immersion. If you were baptized by sprinkling, you shouldn't feel any compulsion to get baptized in a different mode, thinking that if I change the mode, maybe that baptism will be more legitimate and acceptable to God. No. We want to make it very clear that the mode of baptism is not the most important aspect of baptism. I want to make that very clear. And I want to do that by illustrating it to you in a way that you might not expect. In a few moments, we are going to come to the Lord's table. You'll all be invited to come to the Lord's table. And what do we call this? It's not just the Lord's table, it's the Lord's Supper. And we're going to eat and drink with Christ and His church. And it's called the Lord's Supper. And yet, from a certain perspective, none of us would ever call a piece of bread and a sip of wine a supper. And what I want you to see there is that it's not the amount of the element. It's not the quantity of the element that makes the the sacrament valid. It's not the amount of bread or the amount of wine that you drink that makes the sacrament legitimate and valid. You know what makes it legitimate and valid? is the gracious work of God in Christ. That's what makes it legitimate and valid. So when you come to the table, you might look in the plate and think, I want a big piece of bread because I want more of Jesus. You don't get more of Jesus with a bigger piece of bread. You don't get less of Jesus with a smaller piece of bread. You get all of Christ with however big or small the bread is because it's not about the bread. It's about Christ. What does that have to do with baptism? Well, some people are concerned at times that we don't use enough water in baptism. And can I say to you that it's not about the amount of water. If a little piece of bread and a little sip of wine is called the supper of the Lord, and if God is able to work His grace through those very tiny elements, He can do the same with a few drops of water. Because it's not about the amount of water, the quantity of water. You know what it's about? It's about the quality of the Lord and Savior who is at work through these things. So, I believe John the Baptist was baptizing perhaps by sprinkling or pouring. Some of you believe he was baptizing only by immersing. One of us is right. One of us is wrong. Maybe we're both wrong. Maybe we're both a little right. I don't know. But here's what I do know. I know that John was doing his dead-level best to prepare his people for the way of the Lord. And you can rest assured that your pastors are doing the same thing. We want you to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. And so let us rejoice in God's gracious work. As I said, as with the Lord's Supper, it's not the amount of the element that makes a sacrament a sacrament. A little water on the head is as much a washing as a little bread and a little wine in the mouth is a supper and a feast. And here's how. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. Neither does the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or the intention of him, of the minister that administers it, but upon the work of the spirit and the word of the institution. In other words, this is God's gracious work for us, and to us, and in us, and for our children.